Hello, and welcome to the JGUA Financial Commentary Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Barron, and in this episode, I talk to Sarah Collier about investing in collectibles. But before we begin, a short disclaimer. The contents of this podcast are strictly for informational purposes only, and nothing said should be taken as investment, tax, or legal advice. Any strategies discussed may not be suitable for the listener specifically, and JGUA encourages consulting with your advisor before implementing any strategies to ensure they meet your individual objectives. And with that, welcome to the podcast, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me, Andrew. I'm really excited to be here to talk about collecting and hobby collecting and my collection. (laughs) You came to me about this idea because you wanted to talk about your hobby. So why don't we just get into it? Why don't you talk to us about your hobby? Of course. So I have two main collections. One of them is sewing machines, specifically vintage and antique sewing machines. And then the second is dolls, which predominantly my collection is made up of Ginny dolls with some Madame Alexander and Betsy McCall dolls. I think everyone at the firm knows how much I love sewing (laughs) and how much I am avidly looking for new sewing machines to add to my collection. And I think at this point for sewing machines, I have over 15 sewing machines as part of my collection. And what's kind of interesting is that one of them dates all the way back to 1884. It's a, a Singer original model 15 sewing machine. So it's very interesting to have that antique as part of my collection and my next more um, specialized one is going to be my 1914 phoenix hand crank sewing machine which was produced to my understanding in in holland are you able to use all these sewing machines even the one from the 1800s yes uh that's probably one of the most exciting parts is that um, majority of my sewing machines that i do have in my collection are all user-friendly I actually, two years ago at the Chemung County Fair, I had both of those antiques as part of my display for my 4-Hers to demonstrate to other youth how to sew with these sewing machines. So they are very user-friendly. They see some use every year, and they're all oiled. The only issue is that if a part does break down on some of them, you have to go to someone who is specialized in these type of sewing machines that can reservice them and have a good understanding of the sewing machines. Because, for example, when I purchased the one from the singer from 1884, that one actually was one of the pieces had broken and the gentleman actually had to make a part for it. So it had, you had to have someone that's a little bit creative. So is that a little different than the doll collection, which I'm sure has to be a little bit more pristine and well-kept? Ginny dolls were originally made to be played with. Although they are sought after with collectors and they have collector's editions, they are made to be played with. The only fussy part that happens is their hair will get all frazzled and unkept. And sometimes the, if you have older dolls, the clothing itself will start to accumulate um, stains over time, unfortunately. But other than that, I mean, I, my dolls, I mean, I let my niece play with some of them. I, I actually find that the dolls, I mean, they're, they're kept in a box. The sewing machines I have to be a little bit more careful with because once they rust, that's kind of the end of the sewing machine, unfortunately, because they are all 
metal parts, unlike the modern sewing machines, which are mostly, unfortunately, made of plastic. From an investment standpoint, I think one of the interesting things is you are prohibited from holding collectibles um, in an IRA account, which is typically thought of as having being able to hold any investment, but collectibles are explicitly prohibited. Collectibles are specifically carved out from being held in a, you know any type of retirement account, and I think a lot of it has to do with is that the government wants their money. <laughs> there is unfortunately, if you were to make a gain on selling any of your collectibles, it's considered long-term gain, and you would be taxed at long-term capital gain rates. Kind of leading into inheritance, I believe one of our colleagues has a story, if you wanted to share that, Sarah. One of his stories was about his great-grandparents. They were antique collectors and had some high-end pieces. And when they both passed away, it passed on to you know the next generation. They go to sell the pieces. And unfortunately, in this particular situation, he sold one of the pieces, a, a hutch, for just a little under $2,000. But unfortunately, after you know some digging later on, they found out that it was actually had a value of over $30,000 by itself, and let alone any of the other miscellaneous antiques that were sold along with it. So it, it's kind of interesting that there's two folds when it comes to inheriting, which kind of comes to the moral of the story, is that there's that sentimental value that some individuals feel that when they have an antique that they inherited, they get that sentimental value and they immediately think that it's worth lots of money. But then on the flip side, there's that there's some individuals that have that lack of history or the knowledge behind the antique when they inherit it from the previous generation. And so when they go to um, dispose of it in whatever form, whether they sell it or give it away, they don't necessarily understand the value. And in some cases, like this case, they could have made uh, $30,000 and instead, you know, I walked away with 2000 So uh, there's a huge education piece and I, and I can relate completely. If you have antiques or collectibles, I think it's important, especially if you are expecting to pass it down to your children for them to understand what they are, especially if they are really valuable and to kind of know the mechanisms to tap into that value. Um, as advisors, we kind of act as our client's best advocate and interact with other professionals to make sure that nothing, no funny business is happening, no uh, extraordinary fees are happening, and et cetera. Right, um, exactly. And when it comes to estate planning, I always like to recommend to my clients to at least write a letter of last instruction that lays out some of the collectibles and even have an addendum to the will or whatnot or trust that lays out what type of collectibles you have, the value of the collectibles, how much you might have paid for them, um, any history that you have behind them is very important, especially when it goes to the next generation, they can make that determination, you know, obviously depending on what instructions are left in the will or the trust, but they can make that decision of, are we going to pass and, you know, dispose of these are we going to donate them or are we going to sell them or are we just going to hold on to them? Recently, I had a client experience where they inherited 80, 90, 100 pounds of 
silver coins, so substantial sum. And when we looked at appraising them, one of the issues you came across is the collector value versus the bullion value. And so the bullion value is what the metal is worth. It's what the silver inside the coin is worth. The collector value would be if they were actually rare coins that happen to be made of silver. Some of the more secure venues that we, we felt comfortable with are more along the lines of those collector coins. So if you only have bullion, you might suffer from having to go to a pawn shop or gold dealer, but you'll often have to pay 10, 20% in premiums just to get to buy or sell those products from the spot price, which is the price that you might see that an ounce of gold or silver is worth. That is something to also keep in mind with collectibles, especially with precious metals, where you think it's valuable, you think it's a good store of value, but it actually has some issues, especially because you can get exposure to those things through uh, ETFs and mutual funds, for example. I did just want to mention the difficulties in insuring collectibles. Oftentimes, personal property, especially these collectible objects, people think that, well, they're physical, they're in my home, they're safe. But if you actually look at your homeowner's policy, oftentimes these kinds of things, especially let's say jewelry, might have really low caps. And that's for all items. So if you have quite a collection, this may be really insufficient for you. Looking at either scheduling these items specifically, or if it's really um, expensive or valuable collection, you can get very special policies to help insure these. Depending on what you're insuring and what it's worth, it may consider looking into additional insurance policies to make sure that these important parts of your portfolio are covered. Did you have any closing thoughts, Sarah? The few takeaway points I would like to make is just because something can be labeled as vintage or antique does not necessarily mean it has value. And to always do your research, if you're thinking, if you inherit something or you're thinking of getting involved in some of these more speculative collecting investments, or even if you have your own hobby and documenting whatever you can. Well said. Thank you so much for being part of this. Thank you for having me. And thank you to all of our listeners. If you have any questions on this or any other financial topic, please send them to info at jgua.com and visit our website or follow us on social media for additional content. Until next time, everyone, stay smart.